Today, our interviewee for the Apex is Ben Maver, not only a great friend to Private Kex Club, but also the co-conspirator behind a lot of my own automotive adventures, including rallies in a vintage four and a half litre Bentley to somehow driving a 1940s Buick with no brakes through a monsoon. He's also a well-known classic car dealer with his company, Maver Collectible Motorcars, which he impressively started in his early 20s and is one of a small group of, should I say, less aged classic car dealers yet to breach 30 years old. Sadly, something I cannot claim myself. Today, we're going to talk a bit about what started his passion, the art of driving a Range Rover Classic at speed without flipping, and hopefully get some insights into some of the cars he's handled and also the shifting tastes of classic car buyers. Ben, thank you so much for joining us, and let's begin. Pleasure. Hello. What were your first automotive memories, and was there a particular car that started your passion? So, uh, gosh, going back all that way, I suppose um, I had a slightly unconventional uh, start in the sort of uh, in terms of automotive adventures, etc. My father was always very, very passionate about cars, so I sort of naturally followed. Um, We'd sort of go to many car events, some I still sort of attend now. Um, he'd sort of drag me around the country and it was a slightly enforced thing. Thankfully, I, I, did, I did learn to love it pretty much immediately. Um, he was a great Porsche 911 fan. So many weekends were spent hooning around the country in his Porsches and sort of me screaming for him to go even faster. And yeah, it was a, it was a, pretty, uh, a pretty fun way to spend a weekend. My, um, my own individual introduction into the car world came in so 2010 or so um having left school education everything and just sort of decided that that was pretty much the most fun way to spend my time to be honest it it was a more of a social introduction um as you'll know charlie because you and i met out at the monaco historic that was one of the first sort of bigger car events that i attended all those years ago nearly 10 years ago um and since then it's just gone from there but, but yeah, it was my dad's fault, basically. <laughs> and was there a particular car that you uh, owned, a classic car, which you, you, you really instilled that passion? Um, in terms of classic cars, yeah. So um, on my uh, 17th birthday, my father bought me a relatively new first car, which is very kind of him. And three days later, without him knowing, I whipped out and swapped it for an MGB GT, um, <laughs> which caused probably the biggest family argument we've ever seen. To this day um because it wasn't a particularly good deal i wasn't quite so savvy with car, car deals back then sadly um but yeah i think that sparked a sort of obvious interest in in the older more classic generation of of motor cars rather than sort of uh, you know, the modern stuff um in terms of outright sort of interest my father used to occasionally let me drive um on closed roads of course his cars at a pretty young age and, you know, any young whippersnapper being behind the wheel of any 911 is pretty much the best thing in the world. So, yeah, it all started from a pretty young age. Yeah. And you know, we, as you said, we met nearly a decade ago. Um, actually, I think first at the Monaco Historic Grand Prix, as you said. Uh, but also, we, I think we got on because we both used uh, classic Range Rovers as our everyday car, remarkably, uh, specifically LSEs from the early 90s. Uh, and I know we both have an unhealthy obsession with classic Range Rovers generally. You know, what makes them so special? And also tell us a bit about the art of driving a Range Rover classic at speed, preferably without rolling. <laughs> well, yeah, always preferable. Um... I guess my personal uh, sort of um, intro into classic Range Rovers, again, 
uh, what was I, 17, just 18, went out and um, bought a classic Range Rover from some, uh, bless them, but some pretty dodgy dealership in, uh, in Dudley of all places. And they had it crammed into a car lot there. It could have been a disaster. It just could have been a pile of rock, but it turned out to be a really cool car. Um, so that was the first classic range I owned. And they are, to all intents and purposes, you know, they're pretty flawed. They're not the greatest thing in the world, but for some reason, I just love them. There's nothing quite like it. Um, and then it went on from there. I bought the LSE, as you rightly say, which you had a pretty much a matching example. We used to sort of attempt to daily these things. And I think we did a pretty damn good job, actually, for a classic range Rover. Um, in terms of driving them quickly, it's, yeah, it's, it's an interesting art. You've sort of, it's a, it's a different way of driving things. But I think, again, you and I have mastered that one. And there's not too many people that can drive a classic Range Rover much quicker, I wouldn't think. You sort of barrel it along the straight, which takes a little while to get it up to speed. And then you've got to stay there because they're not the quickest thing in the world. So in terms of a corner, miles before the corner, sort of wildly so, you sort of transfer the weight to one side and then just hope for the best, really. And thankfully, it's, ne it's never gone too wrong. And I've never rolled it. Um, so, so, yeah, I think we've got it down to a fine art. Yeah. All about keeping momentum and uh, getting the weight transfer down. right. So, uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of fun, actually. And, uh, and how did you end up turning a passion for cars into a career? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd like to have a really fancy, sort of impressive answer for this. But to be honest, it was a bit of a whirlwind. And... I wasn't really sure how it happened. The, um, the factual sort of journey was Bonhams took me on as a, a work experience boy for a year, um, threw me in at the deep end. One of my first tasks was to drive the Birkin Bentley onto a sort of eight by eight plinth at the Goodwood uh, Festival of Speed sale. I had no real idea what that car, well, certainly what it was worth. And there's little old me sort of um, perching onto this three foot high wooden platform. And later it sold for sort of well, a lot of money. Um, so that was great because although intimidating, it really threw you in at the deep end and at an end of the market, which I never really thought I might see with, without, you know, sort of uh, family link to cars really or anything like that. So bottoms for a year. Then uh, the London lifestyle that that would have brought maybe if I'd have got a full-time job with them at my age, I just wasn't really ready for it. So for some mad reason i was more brave than i am now back then i just decided to go it alone um carrying out auctions at a local hotel in the cotswolds and it just sort of built from there but like i say i'd love to have some sort of impressive answer but it was a bit of a muddle i just somehow made it work <laughs> often the way yeah and we're both arguably at the younger end of the classic car world spectrum while you more so than me sadly uh, do you think being comparatively young compared to most classic car dealers and indeed owners has been a help or a hindrance um i think definitely a mix of both i've just it's is it's what you do with it um you either use it or you know it, it sort of can be a real hindrance yes there are people who you know there are times when a I've got a viewing booked, chap arrives, and the first thing they'll say to me when they walk into my showroom is, oh, I'm so sorry, is your father here? And that's always a bit of a blow, but you've just got to turn it around because, of course, we are not the norm, um, so you can't expect people to just expect this to be me on my own. Um, but I think in the way that it was a help was you've got a USP. I think it's a more interesting, well, it's a story, um, so I just tried to make the most of it, really. There were sort of magazines taking interest in the fact I was a 
you know, 21 year old doing this. So you've just got to make it what you will. Um, you're always going to come against criticism, I suppose, or maybe skepticism rather than criticism um, from the older generations. But, you know, uh, it's, it's all, um, you know, the longer you go on, the more you prove yourself. So no, I'm sort of through that, I think now, nearly 30. I think people are over the fact I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm no longer a youth. <laughs> I'm sure um, some of those dealers, you've maybe got a few gray hairs over the, the, the last few years, but there we go. What's your advice to someone maybe still at school or uni or in their 20s with a passion for classic cars and considering moving into the world professionally? Uh, I would, um, I suggest try and keep it simple, really, um, as strange as that might sound. I mean, I, long story short, I have no real set or forged path into the car world although yeah my father was a, a sort of car fan but many many people are um but um yeah with, with the risk of sounding sort of um yeah you know, hopefully not sounding patronizing in any way but if i can do it then really most people can within reason i mean i never followed a set path i sort of don't really believe that there is one in this industry and don't sort of be frightened to do things in your own way. Again, I didn't really follow anyone's um, anyone's advice that closely, which may may not have um, <laughs> been interesting at times. But I've just done things in my own way, and thankfully, it's worked for me. Um, and again, I've never had financial backing. I've not. It's not my father's business, which he's sort of uh, you know shoehorned me into. It's it is very possible for for people to do what I've done. And I would hate for people to be intimidated out of it. Um, you know, you come to a place like this or many other dealerships that we know, and it's full of crazy wild kit. And to a lot of people, including myself before I was in the industry, I thought, well, I'd love to do that, but I'm, how the how do you do it? How would I ever get there? But as, uh, as cliche as it might sound, it, it, is, it is achievable. So I just wouldn't be frightened by the, the kit that we're dealing with. It's all very doable. You've sold some fantastic cars, uh, including uh, some of my own. Indeed, I think uh, my mother's Porsche 911 from 75 was one of the first cars you sold in your actual dealership. Um, it has, it been, yeah, has it been a car that really stood out for you and, and why? Oh, um, that's a really hard question because, you know, it sounds cliche, but I, I am lucky enough to deal with some pretty monstrous kit. So that is difficult. I mean, just a quick sort of quick fire standout thing, I suppose. Uh, Dodge Coronet Super B springs to mind because it was probably the most, well, it just wanted you dead. Every time you got in it, you just sort of feared for your life, but in a really very exciting way. So the 700 horsepower, 60s American hot rod, that was pretty cool around the lanes of the Cotswolds. Um, this maroon DB5 that I've currently got here looking at me, that's, to be honest, whether it was here a few years ago or it's here today, that is one of the most special cars I think I've ever had. Just so original, so charming. Um, Buster also Richard Hammond's old Land Rover that was a pretty mega bit of kit I did love that thing um, so yeah, there's been there's been many but I guess there are three standout things that immediately spring to mind but I'm sure there are many more 
Yeah, I remember going up the hill by Broadway in the, the, the Dodge Coronet Super B. And um, yeah, I was pretty convinced we were going to die at that point. Um, <laughs> but, but there we go, sideways. Um, yeah, anyway, let's, let's not go into details about that. And, and you mentioned about the Aston Martin DB5, which when I saw it last week, I, I completely fell in love with it. You know, the fact that it's so patinated and original. Um, do you think that a lot of collectors' obsession with perfection in classic cars can end up damaging the charm and character of a car through uh, maybe over-restoration? I, yeah, simple answer I think is yes. I think as a sort of, uh, on the flip side of that, it is all down to personal taste. So I would never criticize such folks for wanting, um, wanting perfection in their cars or, you know, whatever it might be. But for me personally, yes, I do think it's a, a shame when character and soul and feel is removed from a car. And I think the quickest way of doing that is ripping it apart and restoring it, if not necessary. Of course, some cars are too far gone. They need to be redone. Um, but for instance, this car that I have here is a 64 standard non-vantage DB5. Um, and it's never really been restored. It's had a lot of mechanical work uh, and a bit of paint over the years, but things like interior, chassis, everything, it's completely original. Um, and to me, there'd be no greater shame than going along the lines of you know, reupholstering it, which I have had requests on, can you get me a quote to reupholster it? And, to be honest, I shouldn't say this off, but I just haven't replied to the emails because I just, I, you know, I won't sell it to them. Um, it's such a special car. Anybody can go and restore a car now. Throw 200 grand at a DB5, it will be better than new. Anybody can do that if they've got money. But this is just more special than that somehow. Um, so, yeah, I do think there's an art to having some style about it, you know, keeping a car in along the lines of what it should be. It's an old car. It should have some soul. Yep. No, I definitely agree on that. On that, and um, and over the past few years, you've been one of the key proponents of automotive videography when selling a car. And did you help Petroleum and Co, the automotive cinematography company, when they first set up? Do you think video is a far superior medium to photos for capturing the spirit of the car? I definitely do. Yeah, I do. I think the the premise behind Petroleum and Co, which which um, you know was sort of set up quite a while ago now, um, was. George and I sat and discussed the fact that it's it's a funny one because uh, it's a very sort of uh, it's, it's it's always been a bit elusive video. It's, it's sort of either very expensive or very hard to come by, or you don't quite know how to do it, and you've got to do it well because it is actually it's a very difficult thing to master, more so than people think. Um, but if you get it right, I think it's absolutely um, you know superior to photographs, which are great. And you know we can all take lovely pictures and. That is great, but a video is so much more emotive, particularly with cars of this nature, that you want to hear them, see them moving, see them in action. You know, seeing a, a DB5 or an XK whipping down a, a sort of Cotswold country lane is going to be far more exciting and emotive than seeing a static photograph. Um, and so, yeah, I do think it's a, it's a very powerful tool and just a nice way of doing it. No, again, I agree with that. And you've, you've done some great videos of some of my cars in the past with with George at Petroleum and Co. And um, yeah, and then we've done some great projects. I mean, George is uh, is just flowing with it, and the, the videos he produces are yeah, pretty magical, really. So I mean, I was literally the driver. I was just sat having to do the same scene many times over. I really played no part in it, but yeah, they are they're pretty mega. 
I have to say, when you when you took my old um, Maserati, having had a free restoration, and ended up doing a donut in the in the farmyard for for the for the film, I was a little, my heart was in my mouth. But but there we go. And uh, and then over the last you know how many years we've known each other, we've attended some great uh, events, motoring events from the Monaco Historic Grand Prix, the legendary VSCC Pomeroy Trophy, to of course the Goodwood Revive on the Festival of the Speed. You know, we've also been fought to have co-driven on a number of the superb Bells Bespoke rallies in Tuscany and Mallorca these last few years. And indeed, there's no shortage of great stories and adventures, though I think admittedly a large portion are probably not best uh, not to be published. Um, have been curtailed due to COVID this year, but if you could only attend one event next year, which one would it be and why? Oof, gosh. Um, Oh, that is difficult. That is difficult. I think... I think Goodwood Revival, I think. I think it, for me, it just never gets old. I mean, it's, it's obviously very crowded. It's an extremely popular event, but I still maintain there's no greater car event. The style in which it's carried out, uh, the attention to detail, the, the, the cars which attend, the people that are there. Um, I've been attending that for sort of 10 years now, or more actually, and it just never loses its shine. So yeah, on balance, I think, Good revival, as slightly obvious as that answer might be, I think that has to be my answer. Yep. And it's often said that tastes and cars are different between generations, which is then reflected in the demand and indeed prices for different categories of collectible cars. Do you think tastes of the people actively buying classics at the moment, for instance, you know, the collectors walking through your showroom door, are changing? And do you think generations such as our own, millennials, and indeed younger ones, I think they're called Generation Z, are going to be interested in tinkering with an old car or indeed owning them? Um, I certainly, yeah, there's certainly a shift. I think things are naturally moving on a little um in that i think the main i mean it's difficult to to sort of uh provide a theory for it because it's so sporadic i mean this week for for example i've sold a classic range rover which needed a load of work i've sold an xk150s jaguar and i've sold a modern 911 turbo so that sort of shows that it's pretty difficult to uh like i say put put any pattern to it but on the whole I think if you have to sort of come up with a theory, I think things just move on. Like my father's generation, for example, when he was 17, 18, he would have lost it after the sort of, you know, the sort of 70s cars, sort of late 70s, early 80s cars, which he could never have afforded then, uh, can now. So that's what he looks for. Um, I think obviously things like E-types, Heelys, the very obvious classics will always have a following because you just think of that when you think of a classic car. It's just the first thing that your brain jumps to. But in terms of collectors buying what they want personally, um, yeah, I think it's all moving on. Sort of 80s fast forward scene is mad. Um, even 90s fast forwards. I mean, I set my record last year sold a low mileage Ford uh, Escort Cosworth um, in about eight minutes of it going online. And that to me was a surprise because I'd, I've never delved into that market too deeply, having DB5, XKs, all the rest of it around me. So I was surprised at how buoyant that all is. So yeah, I think it's all moving on. And in terms of our generation or the younger fiddling with a blower Bentley or a pre or alpha in years to come, I pray that they do. Um, but I don't know. I think there'll always be, you know, some that will, but I think it might waver a little if I'm totally honest, which I think is a shame. Mm. And last question before the quick far round, who calls the shots at Maver Collectible Cars, you or Beans, your French bulldog? Uh-huh. Well, I would definitely have to say the dog.
hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, I, I'm just merely along for the ride. Yeah, I thought that would be the answer. And then to end with some quick fire questions. So, favorite car ever driven? Ooh, um, favorite car ever driven? Uh, Blower Bentley. Good. Yep. Worst car ever driven? Um. Oh God, I'd like to say you know every car I've ever driven that made a collectible cars is wonderful, but um, I guess on balance, in terms of if I judged it on disappointment levels, um, bit of a controversial one. Maserati uh, Gran Turismo, four point two, bought it with huge expectations, and it was so disappointing. Um, the brake failure didn't help, coming into around about seventy miles an hour, but it was a very disappointing car. So I'd probably say that. Mm. We've got a few mutual friends who might be quite upset by that choice. About that. About that. <laughs> there we go. And then your know, classic car or more modern car, uh, which you know, can you come up with a, a particular one which you think is currently undervalued? I believe that um, sort of the 2000s generation of Aston Martin GT cars, the modern sort of DB9s, DBSs even, I really do believe those are very undervalued, particularly DB9s. Um, I've always thought so, in that they are you know, a fabulous bit of kit, beautiful, dynamically, absolutely joyous. Um, they're a brilliant vehicle, and you can sort of pick one up for 30 grand, which I think is criminal. So, yeah, I'd probably say that generation of sort of GT car, uh, particularly Aston, yeah, I think they're undervalued. Yeah, well, having had one, as you know, for four years, my everyday car, I couldn't agree more. And um, I certainly re regret ever selling that. But uh, And then cars in your showroom at the moment, you, which one would you jump into this afternoon for a spirited blast around the Cotswolds? DB5. Yeah, easy choice. It is just one of the most glorious cars I've ever been in or around or near or anything. It's just lovely. Yeah. And then last question, money, no object, free car garage. Oh, okay. Um, Maserati 300S, absolutely. I was lucky enough to uh, be thrown around the country lanes in a very original, genuine car a couple of years ago, and it has never left me. Um, and then, obviously, uh, we had the 300S uh, tool and copy recreation here for a time, and that was just a joyous machine. So that would be in there. Um, my classic Range Rover has to be in there. It's just the best car in the world. Everyone needs one. Um, and although this is very obvious, slightly juvenile, and probably not that interesting, in terms of what it achieved and what it did when it came out, Bugatti Veyron, I've just always, always held in very high regard just in terms of what it did. Um, so I would love to own those one day. But I probably wouldn't tell everyone because it's a bit obvious, but I've just told everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would love to get behind the wheel of one of those. Well, Ben, thank you so much. Some great answers and insights. Really interesting. And I look forward to seeing you, well, actually mainly Beans, your French, your French Bulldog, soon. Um, thank you so much again. Thank you ever so much. Yeah, thanks ever so much, guys.